but just the reminder. 700 years before Christ, it comes into the world, and the prophet Isaiah writes about the one who would come. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And then what did it say? And the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. And what a wonderful Savior we have, a wonderful gospel to live in and believe in and just being in the gospel class these last several weeks again just being able to talk and refresh and be reminded of God's amazing grace is a wonderful thing so keep yourselves in the love of Christ brothers and sisters and and this is where we where we find it right to sit at the foot of the cross and just gaze on the wondrous cross and on our savior and be reminded how much he loves us amazing so Wonderful to be part of um, this group of church and, and God's, God's faithfulness. We've been through tough times, but there just seems to be steady growth and progress in, in many churches and overseas. So lots to, lots to praise the Lord for and be thankful for. When, when disaster strikes different parts of the world or different segments of society, it's not uncommon for us to hear someone give the reason behind such a disaster as the judgment of God on particular sins. And the same can happen when when great victories or deliverances occur. Uh, Some people will point to it as that was God's blessing for this particular virtuous living. Now we know from God's word that all such events, whether it's the war in Ukraine or the hurricanes in Florida or Haiti worldwide pandemics, the outcomes of every election, we know that all of these are governed and directed by the sovereign hand of Almighty God. What we don't know, unless God explicitly has said so in the Bible, what we don't know is whether or not they are direct, the direct result of specific actions or goodness or evil done by men or nations. The Allies won World War II because we were more righteous than the Nazis and the Japanese. Do we know that? No. HIV was God's judgment on homosexuals. Mm, He hasn't told us that. How do we understand the connection between what we do, our obedience or lack of it, our faithfulness or unfaithfulness, and God's blessing or apparent discipline. How do we understand those connections? We need to be careful here, right? Um, We have to be careful not to jump to hasty conclusions or make categorical statements about why God in his providence brings certain blessings or disasters, victories or losses on people or nation. And God usually does not invite us into his divine reasoning about why exactly specific things have happened in the world around us. But one thing he does invite us to know is when we are living our life today and making decisions for today and we're looking to our future, 
He invites us to know what kind of heart attitudes, pursuits, and priorities will position us and those under our influence to receive his blessing and favor and avoid the unnecessary or the pain of unnecessary discipline and chastening. And he also wants us to know the kind of pursuits and priorities or alliances and reliances which will position us precariously and those under our care to be the likely recipients of God's chastening and correction. So in hindsight, we can't, we can't always make direct connections. God, there's so many things involved in that. We've got to be careful with that. Um, at times we know, you know what? God was disciplining me for my sin. If you're aware of that, that's a wonderful thing. Let's be careful not to point to others and say that. We don't know. But looking forward, we can see God gives us a lot of guidance in his word. What kind of things will help us as his children to position to avoid unnecessary discipline and experience the favor and blessing and care of God? So today we're going to look at the story of Jehoshaphat. Anybody heard of Jehoshaphat? Jump in Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles chapter 17. And of course, if you, you want to be turning there, this, this is narrative literature, which is very different from Paul's letters, of course. Um, Paul's letters are typically logical, step-by-step reasoning. But in narrative, we have repeated words and phrases and ideas. So you look for repetition. We look for themes that are sort of woven in and out of the story. We'll look for contrasting characters, good kings contrasted with bad kings. We're going to look for irony and subtlety. And then there are always fascinating little events or descriptions that catch our attention. You just wonder, that is cool. Why did they put in the Bible? So, guys, something for you to look up tomorrow morning in your quiet time is that after all this, the Lord struck him. This is Jehoram, okay, a different story. The Lord struck him in his bowels with an incurable disease. In the course of time, at the end of two years, his bowels came out because of the disease and he died in great agony. There aren't more details. I always wonder, how did that come about? But anyway, they, they made no fire in his honor, and he departed with no one's regret. So that's in chapter 21, if you want to find it tomorrow morning and figure out what's going on there, okay? But we're not talking about that today. We're talking about Jehoshaphat. And so a brief background in Chronicles. If you read Kings and Chronicles before, your reaction might be, why is there all this repetition? It's like a rerun when you get to Chronicles. At first, it seems that way. But a more careful reading and some help from some good study, study guides help to realize there are some subtle but significant differences between the Kings and the Chronicles. So First and Second Kings was probably written during the 70-year exile. So right after right after the Babylonians destroyed Judah, the southern kingdom, and carried a lot of them off into exile in Babylon. Okay, 586, first and second kings were written. Okay? The chronicles were written later after they have returned from exile to the land of Palestine. And so the chronicler was asking and answering these questions for God's people who have returned to the land. Why did our forefathers go into captivity in the first place? What was their unfaithfulness that led to that disaster of the Babylon captivity? And 
what were the right attitudes and behavior that some of them had that led to God's blessing as a people? So in other words, how do we, how do we avoid repeating the former, the unfaithfulness, and walk in the pattern of the latter? So the, when, the, when the chronicler goes back and talks about the history of the kings, he's going to point these things out. What was their unfaithfulness that led to disaster? Where did they walk in obedience that led to God's blessing. And that's what we want to learn this morning as well and think about. So in the course of our working and parenting, our marrying and vacationing, our buying and saving and all of the kinds of things that we do on a regular basis in life, what kind of heart attitudes and priorities will place us in the path of God's blessing and favor and what kind, in converse, would put us in direct conflict with him and his good purposes for us. So let's pray, and then we're going to read chapter 17, and then to try to think through what we can learn from the life of Jehoshaphat. Father, thank you for your grace to us as individuals, Lord. Many of us have experienced your saving, justifying grace, and we stand right with you because of what Jesus has done. Thank you for your grace in our church, Lord. Thank you for your grace in our group of churches, your faithfulness over 40 years. So we are so thankful for that, Lord. And we want, as we continue to walk with you, we want to learn how to walk in a way that's pleasing to you, Lord, it helps us to avoid unnecessary disaster and discipline in our lives. Lord, would you give us hearts to learn from the example of Jehoshaphat. Lord, whether we're 11 or 12 here today or 41 or 81, Lord, would you speak to us and deepen our trust in you and our desire to walk with you today. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So King Jehoshaphat, as we read Chapter 17 here. Notice, in fact, can you put up the next, the next slide there with the points there? So as we read, we're going to see Jehoshaphat's works of faith here and things that he does militarily. We're going to see his religious and spiritual leadership and see things about his heart after God. So be looking for those three things as we read, okay? And um, so beginning in... Chapter 17, verse 1. So Jehoshaphat, his son, that's Asa's son, reigned in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. He placed forces in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim that Asa, his father, had captured. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel. Therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat and he had great riches and honor. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord and furthermore, he took the high places and the Asherim out of Judah. High places were places where they did idol worship, but Asherim were sort of a female, um, the, the Baal's consort of female goddess, very prevalent in the land of Canaan. 
In the third year of his reign, he sent his officials, and I'm going to bumble through these names, Ben-Hile, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nethanet, and Micaiah to teach in the cities of Judah. And with them, the Levites, Shemaiah, Nathaniah, Zebediah, Asahel, Shemiramoth, Jehonathan, Adonijah, Tobijah, and Tobadonijah. And with these Levites, the priests, Elishema and Jehoram, and they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands around Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. Some of the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents and silver for tribute, and the Arabians also brought him 7,700 rams and 7,700 goats. And Jehoshaphat grew steadily greater. He built in Judah fortresses and store cities, and he had large supplies in the cities of Judah. He had soldiers, mighty men of valor in Jerusalem. This was the muster of them by fathers' houses. O Judah, the commanders of thousands, Adna the commander with 300,000 mighty men of valor, and next to him, Jehohanan, the commander, with 280,000. And next to him, Amasiah, the son of Zikri, a volunteer for the service of the Lord, with 200,000 mighty men of valor. Of Benjamin, Eliada, a mighty man of valor, with 200,000 men armed with bow and shield. And next to him, Jehozabad, with 180,000 armed for war. These were in the service of the king, besides those whom the king had placed in the fortified cities throughout all Judah. Now let's remember the chronicler, when we look at the life of Jehoshaphat, wants us to learn. And Jehoshaphat, he was a godly, good king, a wonderful example. Wants us to learn what were the things that brought God's blessing back there that we can imitate and repeat, okay? And when, when I read through this, and probably for you too, one of the first things that struck me is what a great leader of the nation Jehoshaphat was. As a king, what, what a commander-in-chief. I mean, he strengthened the military, both in verses 1 and 2, and then toward the end of the chapter, he did a fantastic job building up the military strength of the nation to protect them against their enemies. So his military work. Secondly, his religious and spiritual leadership of the nation is very, very, um, well, it stands out there in verses 7 and 9. Third year of his reign, hey, we're coming into the third year of our president's reign, aren't we? Our president's um, period. What do we call it? Four-year term. Third year of his term. Imagine if a president of the United States would do what Jehoshaphat did, send officials throughout the whole realm into small towns, into cities, into schools, and teach what? Teach. They took the book of the, the, book of the law of the Lord with them and taught among the people. What an influence that had to have in the nation of Judah. And what an influence that would have in our nation if there was that kind of, of, of leading and spiritual and religious guidance from the leader of the nation. This is what Jehoshaphat did as a leader of, of, of Israel. 
Now a question. All these King Jehoshaphat's, his actions and his works there, I called them Jehoshaphat's works of faith. Now were they works of faith? Do we know that? Or were they just actions of self-reliance? When he built up the military and also seemed to build the economy of, of Judah, right? All the storehouses, the wealth that came in. Were those acts of faith or were they acts of self-reliance and dependence on his own effort? Now, it can be a little hard to, to figure this out all the time. Sometimes we're trying to figure out motivations. But there are some indications in the text to help us. And some of them are right here in the chapter, some in some other chapters around, around this chapter. But first of all, let's notice the remarks about Jehoshaphat's heart. Where was his heart? In verse 3, it says, The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments. Verse 6, his heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. And if you flip over to chapter 20, hopefully in several weeks we'll have an opportunity to look at chapter 20. Chapter 20, verses 3 and 4. Here is when one of the most what, scary militaries invaded his land. And his response in chapter 20, verse 3 and 4, then Josh, the Jehoshaphat was afraid and he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed the fast throughout all Judah and Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. I think there's evidence here that in all his military buildup, Jehoshaphat's trust was not in his military, right? He set his heart to seek the Lord. So we see Jehoshaphat's heart behind all that he did was not self-confidence. It was not, I'm building this all up for myself. He was acting a way that expressed faith in God. So that's why I call his actions here the obedience or works of faith. Does that make sense? And it's very interesting that, that, that Jehoshaphat here is not saying, I'm going to trust God and so we're just going to sit back and pray. We're going to let go and let God. The last time I tried that, Carol had to drag me out of bed for supper time because I had been letting go and waiting for God to show up and he, he never showed up. So letting go and let, let God doesn't quite capture this interplay between our actions of obedience and God's providential work. Now there are also some indications um, in, in about Jehoshaphat's heart, the way it talks about God's work. So back in verse 3, the Lord is with Joshua because he walked in the ways of the Lord. And then right after his back to the Bible campaign, as someone called it in verse 7 through 9, the very next word in verse 10, and the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the land that were around Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. As if the writer is telling us there is a direct connection between his faith and, and importance of the word of God for him in his life and in his nation and God's blessing of peace and stability and security that God brought. 
And this theme, if you read more in Chronicles, this theme of seeking the Lord, they sought the Lord, or they did not seek the Lord, runs throughout the two, the two books of Chronicles. The word seek or sought, it's, it's actually there are two Hebrew words that come be, before our English term, but they're used 40 times in Second Chronicles. This is a theme. Did this king seek after the Lord? Did he inquire of the Lord or not? And, you know, if you look at just back a few verses, at the end of chapter 16 in verse 12, King Asa, most of his life, a very godly king. But you see this sad remark in chapter 16, verse 12. In the 39th year of Asa's reign, Asa was diseased in his feet and his disease became severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord. But he sought help from from physicians. And I don't think the problem was that he sought help from doctors. Right? In Jehoshaphat's life, there was all kinds of actions he took, right? I'm going to build the military. I'm going to build the economy. But where was Asa's trust when it came down to his disease and his feet? He did not seek the Lord. He said, I'm I'm not going to trust him. I'm going to trust in doctors. Revealing about what it means to seek after the Lord. So let's look some now at the blessings of God on Jehoshaphat and the nation and just see how God responded. We've already mentioned some of them, um, but I'm just going to mention six or seven things real quickly. In verse 3 of chapter 17, the Lord's presence and guidance, and the Lord was with Jehoshaphat. In verse 5, it's the internal stability as a nation, as a culture. It says, therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in Jehoshaphat's hand. And when you just think about recent history in our world, Britain, how, how, many, how many elections have they had to have try to figure out their prime minister? The instability that is so common in nations. And God, they did not have to deal with that in Israel because God established the kingdom in, in Jehoshaphat's under his leadership. Verse 5 also says Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor. In verses 7 through 9 with his, with his Bible teaching, imagine the cultural shift of a nation that has been focused on the word of God and the teaching of God's word. In verse 10, the peace, the external security, when God kept, put the fear of the Lord on nations so that they made no war against Jehoshaphat. All these things are the blessing of God on Jehoshaphat because of the way he is trusting God and leading his nation. And then great wealth was given to him. So as we think about this, what what is the interplay? What's the connection between our obedience and the the blessing of God? And and there are so many nuances to this that I I can't hit on on all of them. One thing we want to be sure is we're not thinking tit for tat, genie in the bottle. If I do this, God will do this for me. God doesn't deal with us like that. We don't deal with our children like that. It's a relationship, but there are ways that we can walk to walk in his blessing, and there are ways that we can walk to move out of his blessing. And part of it has to do with this idea of seeking the Lord. So let's think a little bit about that phrase. Again, it's used so many times, dozens of times in the Chronicles. What does it mean to seek the Lord? What does it look like? How do we know where our own hearts are without without being all tied up in navel-gazing. Am I seeking the Lord? Am I not? 
But how do we understand what that will look like, what will characterize that? Well, let's, first, let's think first about the opposite of seeking the Lord, of, and that would be forsaking the Lord or seeking after other things. So forsaking the Lord doesn't necessarily mean that you never give him a thought or you never go to church or you never read your Bible or that you're a grossly immoral person. It doesn't necessarily mean those things. It could mean all those. That's how some people express their forsaking of God. They say, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. I'm just going to live like the devil himself. I don't give a rip, right? But you might do all those things. You might be in church regularly, read your Bible often, more than most people around you. The Pharisees did, right? And like we were talking about this morning in the gospel class, there are a lot of us who can be pretty good little Pharisees. So we might do all those things, but what forsaking the Lord would mean is all of that bears very little weight in your life. Very little weight in your decision-making and values and purposes and pursuits. You could nod your head in agreement with everything that is said on Sunday morning. But it bears no weight the rest of your life. It doesn't affect the way you work, the way you parent, the way we deal with our friends at, church, at school Monday through Friday. We might have all the right answers in youth group meeting or midweek community group. But it may have little effect on our life because we've, we do it. But it, it, it bears no weight. We are forsaking the Lord. We're seeking other things. So let me mention three things now thinking positively about seeking the Lord that that come out from Jehoshaphat's life. The first, seeking the Lord has to do with what or who has the greatest sway in your life. What or who has the greatest sway and impact in the way you live your life? Someone's given this illustration. Is God the sun in the center of the universe of your life, such that all the, all the other planets of your work and leisure and money and marriage, parenting and learning, all those other planets circle around him as the sun? Is he the sun in the center of your solar system? Or is he like Pluto, way off there, somewhere in the distant recess of your mind? He's, he's there, but he, he bears little weight. Really no, no influence in how you think, what decisions you make, the things you pursue. Jehoshaphat was a man, a king, who was resisting the cultural influence. He, he did not seek the bales. He was courageous in the ways of the Lord to resist. Though. He took out the high places, took out the ashram. He was going to resist that and set his heart. God was going to have the greatest weight, the greatest sway in how Jehoshaphat lived his life and set his priorities. So that's the first thing. Seeking the Lord has to do who or what holds the greatest weight and sway in your life. Secondly, seeking the Lord has to do with whose will we ultimately desire. When your heart is set on something new, whether it's a job or a house, a girlfriend, a wife, a new car, a vacation, whatever... Perhaps you even pray about it and ask God, God, would you lead in this? But is your mind already set on something regardless of what the Lord's will is for you? Is your prayer really, Lord, I really like this, give it to me, period? 
Or is it, Lord, I trust you. I like this. But more than I desire this, whatever this is, I want what you want for me. Ultimately, I want you. Seeking the Lord has to do with whose will we ultimately desire. You know, I found one of the most freeing things to say when when we're wrestling with these things is to say, you know what, I don't need. I'll be satisfied even if the Lord chooses not to give me this particular friend or this thing or this thing. Such a freeing thing in real. You know what? Lord, I can leave it with you. Do I want it? Yes. That RAV4 keeps going across the screensaver in the back of my mind. Do I want it? Yeah. But you know what? I'm content without it because I want more than that. At least that's what I want to want more than that, right? Is you. And whatever you have for me, Lord, I know is best. That's part of what it means to seek the Lord. I think as we grow in the Lord, I think as we mature, this becomes easier, I think. Especially if we walk through that on numerous occasions and realize, you know what? The Lord cared for me in a better way than I could care for my, what I wanted myself. And young people, I just want to encourage you as you wrestle and you see what the world promises. They're all false promises. But what the world promises and you want it you gotta have that God's promises and and what he provides are much much better and if you can set your heart to say my Lord this thing is drawing on my affections and my desires right now but I will trust you that what you have for me is much better the freedom you will have in that you will find wonderful. And the experience of God's presence and what it means as he begins to satisfy your heart, I assure you, you will not be disappointed. But I think we've all experienced a lot of things. We got what we wanted, and it sort of left us empty. Right? Didn't, didn't turn out to what we thought it would be. But seeking the Lord means we will trust his will what are his desires for us? That's what we ultimately want. And then the third thing, so seeking the Lord, who, who has the greatest sway, the greatest weight in our lives? Who ha- whose will do we ultimately desire, ours or his? And then thirdly, whose power or resources do we rely on for the outcomes of our efforts and decisions? In the middle of situations or struggles, I can easily find myself thinking, I've got to figure this out. I've got to fix this. I've got to do this. And realize, I'm counting on myself to try to remedy this situation or fix this situation. And if I'm smart at all, I'll realize that is a stupid place to be. To trust in my resources? I can't bring this about. But that's where, that's where our default goes, right? I, I can figure it out. I'm smart enough. I can work harder. I can fix it. If I just can do this, if I just save up that money, and our trust so easily turns to our own human resources. But seeking the Lord means as we're doing those different things that we are called to do, we realize I can't guarantee the outcome. All the money I might be able to save would not 
guarantee this financial outcome I want. All my intelligence, I still can't fix this problem. And so as we live and act, what we, what we do is we say, Lord, I believe this step is what you want me to do. This decision is where you want me to go. But I'm not trusting in it for the outcome. The outcome is totally in your hands. My part is to obey what I believe you're telling me to do and then trust you to work out whatever outcome you know is best. And let's think about that a little more here, about this third aspect of seeking the Lord in terms of power and resources and trusting in the how does our responsibility fit in with the sovereignty of God, that interplay. And during the summer, we several of us read through Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God, and, and he had a wonderful section on prayer, prudence, and trust in God's providence. And I want to I read a couple quotes from his book. Um, so if you'll put that first one up there. Um, and this one's about prayer. Prayer assumes the sovereignty of God. If God is not sovereign, we have no assurance that he is able to answer our prayers. Our prayers would become nothing more than wishes. God's sovereignty is the foundation of our trust in him, and prayer is the expression of that trust. So one way to assess where our hearts are, and if our lives are out of balance in this, in in terms of our acting versus our Trusting is, where does prayer enter in? Do we have an overemphasis on our efforts and our study and our diligence with little time for prayer about something? I I can find myself just fretting and thinking and talking and, you know, I haven't even stopped to pray about this. Where does that, that indicates a lot about my heart, right? It indicates where our hearts are if prayer plays little part in the decisions and the solutions and the actions we take. The next quote there, Philip. Just as God's sovereignty does not set aside our responsibility to pray, it also does not negate our responsibility to act prudently. To act prudently in this context means to use all legitimate biblical means at our disposal to avoid harm to ourselves or others and to bring about what we believe to be the right course of events. Prayer is the acknowledgement of God's sovereignty and our dependence upon him to act on our behalf. Prudence is the acknowledgement of our responsibility to use all legitimate means. We must not separate these two. And we see that in the life of Jehoshaphat. He was a man of prudence, worked hard with the military, worked hard for the economy, taught the people, but we're going to see when we get to chapter 20, he was also a man of great prayer and trust. Go to the next one. Or, and here's, here's a silly illustration. But when, when, and when the basement's flooding, we don't need to call the community group together to have a prayer meeting, do we? We just go and figure out, where is the flooding coming? Turn it off. And then maybe shoot a text. Hey, would you pray for me? I'm trying to... But, so we don't, we don't have to get all worked up over, man, did I pray first? Did I pray long enough? But these are just some things, and we don't want to get into all tied up in knots. Did I do enough? God doesn't want us to walk that way 
And did I, did I do, do it all right? But it's in walking with him. Does prayer play a part, a regular part in these things? Or do we find ourselves constantly depending on our own resources? That's what we want to be aware of. The next one, Philip. We must depend on God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We must to the same degree depend on him to enable us to do what we must do for our, do ourselves. The farmer must use all of his skills, experience, and resources to produce a harvest. Yet he's utterly dependent on forces outside of himself. Those forces of nature, moisture, insects, sun, are under the direct sovereign control of God. The farmer is dependent upon God to control nature so that his crop will go. But he is just as dependent upon God to enable him to plow, plant, fertilize, and cultivate properly. From where did he get his skills, his ability to learn from his experience, the financial resources to buy the equipment and fertilizer he uses? Where does even his physical strength to do his tasks come from? Are not all these things from the hand of God who gives all men life and breath and everything else? In every respect, we are utterly dependent upon God. I think this is so helpful for us thinking, okay, with, with health issues, with medical things, are there medications we need to take? Are there diet changes we need to make? Are there, is there exercise that we need to... Yes, we need to ask a help me to do these things that I need to do. And then we pray and say, God, would you cause this to make a difference in my health? How we pray. So we don't want to lean to... We don't want to be that let go and let God and just pray. God has given us so many responsibilities that we do in obedience and faith, trusting him that he will make the outcome what he desires. A quote from, this next quote from Brian Chapel in his book, Grace at Work. You may think you can simply hone your talents and increase your energy so that your life will prosper, but just a little hiccup in the economy, just a mistaken entry in the ledger, just a brief change of circumstances, a car crosses the center line for a fraction of a second, you breathe in a microscopic microscopic virus your child takes a wrong step and life as you know it comes unraveled more quickly and deeply than you ever believed was possible psalm 127 unless the lord builds a house they labor in vain who build it unless the lord watches over the city the watchman stays awake in vain but the builder still has to build right and the watchman still has to watch but our trust is in him to bring the outcome that only he can bring. Let me give one more quote. It's, it's, not, it's not in this one. Philip, I, I haven't given you this one. There's a genuine busyness that flows from dedicated devotion to God's purpose. But it's not a devotion that excludes him. If my business decisions or my parenting, or my teaching, or whatever else, if they allow no time <clears throat> for counsel from God's word, or a Christian friend, then I am being ruled by a schedule that has put God on the sidelines of my life. What's the problem with that? Think again about the opening words of Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Biblical busyness does not exclude biblical habits or spiritual di disciplines. 
hopefully, this, just thinking about the life of Jehoshaphat, all his hard work, but combined with faith in God, and then thinking, how, how do we see, how, we, how can we know if our hearts are seeking the Lord? Let's think about some applications. And the first one is a little, little aside here that I can't ignore um, in light of the election coming up on Tuesday. So I want just to mention um, one of the themes that does come through in the book of Chronicles is the influence of the king, the leaders on the people. Good godly leaders led the culture in a different direction than bad, evil kings. So thinking about the election, some of you probably many have already voted, some have not. I haven't voted yet. I plan to vote on Tuesday. But two years ago, when I was preaching from the book of Habakkuk, I stated as clearly as I could this point. And that is, the Lord is more committed to the purification of his people than the preservation of their nation. Okay? God is more committed to preserving and purifying his people, us, his bride, his church, than he is in sustaining the United States of America. We have no indication from Scripture that God has any commitment to the long-term preservation of this country. He may preserve it longer. He may be pleased for it to collapse next year. None of us know. That's one thing we've got to keep in mind. God's commitment to the purification of his people more than the preservation of the United States. But here's another equally important point from us from Chronicles. And it's, run, it's a theme that runs throughout. And that is that kings, princes, presidents, and politicians have a huge influence on the moral direction of their nation. As the king goes, so often the nation went. So I urge you, when you go to vote on Tuesday, and I hope that every one of us, 18 and over, is voting, consider this carefully. If we elect leaders who support the killing of preborn babies all the way up to the moment of birth, who support the perversion and dissolution of God's design for marriage and the distortion and confusion about what it means to be male and female, then we can expect that divine judgment in our nation will be even closer than it already is. So I appeal to you, my brothers and sisters, Don't vote for leaders who will wreak havoc and disaster on our nation as a whole and on our neighbors right next to us by leading us and encouraging us to engage in further ungodliness. Interestingly, two kings in Chronicles, Ahaz in chapter 28, Manasseh in chapter 36, they performed child sacrifice. They burned their sons as offerings in the valley of the sons of Hinnom. And they led the country, Judah, to do the same. So on the contrary, if we elect leaders who are committed to protecting the lives of the unborn and defending the beauty of God's design in marriage and in creating us male and female, God may be pleased in his mercy to postpone the judgment that is surely coming on our country. When the king and the people in Chronicles repented and turned from their wicked ways, On numerous occasions, the Lord in his mercy, he deferred or diminished the judgment he said he would bring on them. So in our nation, may we as his people be a means not to hastening that judgment, 
but to delaying it and averting it, even in the way we vote on Tuesday. Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And now three other quick thoughts as we finish here. Who has the greatest sway? Who or what has the greatest sway in your life? Think about this, that this week as you're engaged in your work, decisions. Decisions about what you're going to buy, other things. Who holds the greatest sway? Is it God? His word? Are they the weightiest things in your life? I hope so. I hope that's what happens in my life, that it's not just like the fall leaves that a breath blows them away. Secondly, whose power and resources are we relying on for the outcomes of our efforts and decisions? Our resources? Or as we're acting faithfully, do we realize, God, I can't, I can't accomplish this. Would you work through and around my faithfulness to accomplish what you desire? And then thirdly, whose will do you ultimately desire? When there's something you and I want, something you have set your heart on, Are you set on that? Or do you want God's will knowing his will is the best for you? And in all of these questions, as we're wrestling with our own desires, trying to search our hearts, our greatest hope and motivation is that we have a Savior who is glorious beyond all imagination, has come, shed his blood to purchase us, guarantee an eternity with him, and his presence will be fullness of joy, Pleasures forevermore. He promises to satisfy every desire of our hearts for all eternity. And that, if we keep that in our thoughts, can help us in these decisions and motivate and realize, Lord, I'm going to seek you. I want you to hold greatest sway. I want to desire what you want for me. I'm going to trust you to bring about the outcomes. And as John Newton counseled, he said, Find lodging as near to Calvary as possible and take daily walks there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the examples, both negative and positive, that show us how you want us to walk with you, how you want us to trust you. Lord, did you help us this week just to be aware? Help us to be more aware of our own hearts. Lord, our motives, our areas where we see misplaced trust or that we could repent of that and trust you and see you work in ways that would surprise us and delight us because we are learning to seek you with all our hearts work in us we pray in jesus name amen thanks for being here today trust the lord will give you a wonderful week as you walk with him and you are dismissed thank you